the story. We've barely seen Sarah. She's been noted as his wife, but she has barely appeared on the stage so far. Um, So far, it's really all been about him. Today, for the first time, Sarah takes her place in this story. We see her and we hear her voice for the first time. So let's read this now. Genesis 16. There it is. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him. But she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, The Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. This happened ten years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar, and she became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress, Sarai, with contempt. Then Sarai said to Abram, this is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms, but now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. Abram replied, look, she's your servant, so you deal with her as you see fit. Then Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that she ran away. The angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness along the road to Shur. The angel said to her, Hagar, Sarai's servant, where have you come from? And where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she replied. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. And then he added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. And the angel also said, You are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. For the Lord has heard your cry of distress. This son of yours will be a wild man as untamed as a wild donkey. He will raise his fist against everyone and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live in open hostility against all his relatives. Thereafter, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. She also said, have I truly seen the one who sees me? So that well was named Bia Lahai Roy, which means well of the living one who sees me. It can still be found between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave Abram a son, and Abram named him Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old 
when Ishmael was born. Let's pray. Loving God, open now your word to us. So that through the lives of these women, we would see something more of you. This is their story, and it's also your story. So come, Holy Spirit, and reveal to us what you want to say. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start today by reading something from this book. This is a book that I remember reading as a child. It was a library book. I've always remembered it. It's called Sarah and After by Lynn Reed Banks. She's quite a well-known children's author. And when I decided to do this series, I went online to see if I could find a copy because I've always remembered it. I found it secondhand on Amazon. And when I borrowed it as a library book as a child, I didn't know that it was about the biblical family of Sarah. I only realized that when I started reading it. And it really hooked me and drew me in. And I've always loved the the story of Abraham and Sarah and the generations that come after them because this book really brought them to life. And so I want to read a section to you now. So settle in and enjoy some Jack and Ori time. This won't be on the screen. It's just story time. The life of a desert wanderer is hard on a woman. The constant pressure of the sun and the abrasive sting of the sands, the variable winds and the alternations of daytime heat and nighttime cold dry out the skin and draw the bright life from eyes and hair. And for Sarai it was doubly hard, for her spirit was drying up with her body, drying up from disappointment from hope continually renewed and continually confounded. To see the meanest creatures around her, the servant girls and slaves repeatedly and effortlessly producing new life, and to be forever aware of her own emptiness was an affliction more terrible than any disease or punishment. She thought often and ever more bitterly of God's promise, which as she aged grew less and less possible of fulfillment. She felt herself unjustly cursed, the more so since her hopes had been raised so high and she had obeyed and followed God when he called. As the years passed, she grew more and more silent and withdrawn. Her intimate conversations with her husband dwindled to a simple exchange of domestic necessities. Abraham was so absorbed with the inner world he shared with his God that he scarcely noticed her distress. In any case, his faith was so great that he wouldn't have countenanced the reason for it. He never saw how old she was getting, any more than he was aware of his own wrinkled, leathery face and withered hands and cloud-white hair and beard. He still stood straight and tall, and he still walked without a stick. 
Sarai saw her servant girl Hagar outside in the sunlight, stretching her body and throwing out her arms to the wind. As she saw the free, youthful gesture, she clutched her own forearms, digging the nails into the shriveled flesh. Guilt and shame crawled over her. She was taken by a sudden loathing for herself, for her own aged, barren body. And she began to beat her shrunken breast and sob aloud with wretchedness. But she hid her misery from Abraham when he returned from walking alone on the mountain with God with renewed and ever more grandiose promises for their non-existent descendants. In growing disbelief, Sarai listened. Those who came after them would be as numerous as the stars in the night sky, apparently. The bitterness rose to choke her as she thought of how this news would have brought pride and dignity and joy to her soul if only she could see the faintest likelihood of it coming true. How can any of it be true, she cried at last, when we are both slipping into our graves childless? We shall have children, Abram said firmly. Do not doubt it. God has promised it to me. To you, yes, she exclaimed, but has God mentioned me? He didn't answer. Abram, she cried, I cannot give you this son you've been promised, but Hagar is young enough. Take her, take her as a second wife. Do it now before my jealousy makes me take it back. Let the word of God come true through her. And maybe because I have been unselfish and set myself aside, maybe God will honor me in some other way. Maybe honor can come to me through her children instead of the children I have longed for. And her voice broke up in violent sobbing, a storm of grief that she had carried for a lifetime. Abram held her gently, and when she became calmer, he spoke slowly. It is true that God has not mentioned you by name, he said at last. Perhaps this is indeed his purpose. I am old already, we've waited so long. I will do as you say. She gasped with pain as he went on, but remember, for me you will always be the first and the dearest, for you see I have never set you aside for childlessness, and I've never suggested taking another wife. I have loved only you, and that will not change. She drew away from him, his words lost amidst the roaring of the pain in her heart, in her whole being. very evocative isn't it it brings it to life so well and it brings Sarah to life so well the Bible rarely gives us a woman's perspective 
not even a woman's perspective on her own life. And I think that's why I found it so powerful to have Sarah step off the page, to hear her voice, to see this situation through her eyes. And it reminds us really that these people that we're learning about, they're not painted icons, they're real people, imperfect people who felt real pain and who didn't know how their story would end. So let's focus on Sarah for a few minutes today. She's not often the focus of anyone's attention, really. If you've got a Bible there, you could just turn back a few pages to Genesis 11, which is where Abraham is first introduced. In chapter 11, I know this text is small, I just want to illustrate this. In chapter 11, from verses 10 to 29, there is a long genealogy, tracing the generations through the centuries from Noah and Noah's son, Shem. And there were 10 generations from Adam to Noah and 10 generations from Noah to Abraham. And the names are all recorded. So-and-so was the son of so-and-so, who was the father of so-and-so. And there is this unbroken line down through the centuries. And almost at the end of that line in chapter 11 comes Terah, who had three sons, one of whom was called Abram. And Abram married Sarai, and suddenly this glorious genealogy, this wonderful family line comes to a screeching halt. Because in verse 30 it says, but Sarai was unable to become pregnant and had no children and so suddenly everything hits a brick wall everyone's been having sons beautifully developing this wonderful family line and being fruitful the having of sons would be seen as a sign of blessing and prosperity and so what pain this would have caused for them both but particularly to Sarai, who is named as the source of the problem. She is the one who is defective, the weakest link, the one who's letting everyone down. Her whole identity as a woman would be undermined by this. Where is she to find self-respect and self-worth? She probably didn't have very much. There's a gaping hole inside her that she's never been able to fill. She has failed as a wife in this society. But she's an intelligent woman. She's very astute. The penny drops that although God has promised Abraham three times now, that he will bless him and he will have numerous descendants, she has not been named in any of those promises. And so maybe the promise is just for him and not for her. Maybe she, as the redundant and worthless and defective one, just needs to get out of the way. 
I think this is an act of unselfishness on Sarai's part, what she does here. It's often portrayed as, oh, well, this is Sarai just not trusting God enough and going and looking for her own solution to the problem. Because, of course, what this suffering woman needs is criticism of her actions and her motives through the whole of history. Sarai decides she needs to give God a helping hand is what we so easily preach about her, about this passage, when we fail to put ourselves in her shoes. Can we at the very least just notice that Abraham agrees that this could be the right thing to do? And he's the one who's been having all this direct contact with God, not Sarai. He's the one God speaks to, not her. Including what we looked at last week, that wonderful promise about the stars in the sky. And yet here Abraham is agreeing that yes, this sounds like a good idea. The way I see it, Sarai wants Abraham to be able to have what God has promised him. She grasps the greatness of the promise. But based on all the evidence from the whole of her life, she's come to the conclusion that the promise is for him and not for her. And that actually she's getting in the way. She has become a blockage. And in a mighty act of sacrifice, and courage. She wants to give Abraham a way to get around the blockage. Sarai's story leaves us with so many questions. There are various things that God could do, but chooses not to. And we can't help but ask why. Why does God leave her childless for so long? Why doesn't he give her a child sooner? Why doesn't he name her in the promises? Why does she have to go through so much suffering? I think that maybe something that Sarai's story has to teach us is that there are difficult questions for all of us in all of our lives and often they are why questions and we can't answer them we can imagine how much Sarai prayed to God for a child week after week month after month year after year and we need her story because it shows us that sometimes our prayers are met with silence. No matter how hard we've prayed or how many years we've prayed, after all these years, nothing has changed. The reality gap is as big as it's ever been. The gap between what God has said 
and what they can see around them in reality. There will always be questions that we can't answer. And I can't today give you an explanation for that. I can't explain it away. I can't give you a comforting strategy to deal with it. It's hard. The only thing we can do in the face of those hard questions in our lives that we just can't answer is to doggedly remind ourselves of what God is like the nature and the character of the God that we believe in. I'm in pain and I've got no answers as to why this is happening, but in the end, when everything else is stripped away, what kind of God do I believe in? What do I know about him? What do I know him to be like? Those are the only truths that we can cling to and we need to cling to them for dear life in those times when things get really bad. We saw last week in chapter 15 that Abraham, Abraham had reached his limit with the reality gap. And today we see now that Sarai has reached her limit with this reality gap. And I don't think that we should judge either of them too harshly. I think this passage is relating to us the story of Sarai doing what she feels she must do in unbearably tough circumstances. And I think we can read this passage with sympathy. A bit like the decision to go to Egypt a few chapters ago to escape a famine. It may be a bad decision, but it's made for good reasons. I wish the text was clearer in both of those stories, that one and this one, about whether they sought guidance from God or not. It doesn't say that they did, and so we assume that they didn't. But that doesn't erase here the years of praying and waiting and pleading that have been met with silence. Maybe it's most surprising that Abraham doesn't pray or seek guidance from God before deciding to go ahead with this plan. After all, he's just had this amazing encounter with God in chapter 15 last week. He's the one who's been having these encounters. And it seems incredible that he would forget to confer with God before making this decision, but it seems that he does. And that's another reminder, maybe, that these things didn't just happen one after the other. There were gaps of years in between them. And there's a lot in this little incident that is just not neat and tidy the way that we'd like it. 
It's really easy for us to feel superior and to label this as a lapse of faith. But in my opinion, in these circumstances, there is nothing fundamentally wrong with taking some action, with taking the initiative in the seeming absence, the actual absence of any action from God. God bless them, they'd waited long enough. No one could accuse them of rushing to secure an heir at this point. Sarai thinks that maybe she could bring up Hagar's child as her own and that in some way she could get the honor of motherhood through a surrogate. And in our day and time we do we do this as well. We turn to IVF or adoption, maybe, for a couple who long for a child but can't have one. And it's perfectly acceptable and understandable in our society. In their day, it was perfectly acceptable for the wife to put forward another candidate. And because Hagar is Sarai's primary maidservant, she will carry the child on behalf of Sarai. Well, that's the plan. Maybe Sarai also knows a truth of women down the ages that sometimes a woman who adopts a child finds she can become pregnant when she wasn't able to before. The text here gives us no guidance as to how we're supposed to view this decision. There's certainly nothing in the text that suggests that God views this as sinful or a breaking of faith. God knows that this is not the way that he wants his promise to be fulfilled, but there's no suggestion here that he blames them or punishes them for it or even rebukes them. But they do manage to get into a very human tangle, all of their own making, don't they? The Old Testament actually has lots of dysfunctional families. Don't ever think that God requires hearts and flowers, perfect families, and views dysfunctional families as second rate. God does some of his best work through dysfunctional families. But there are consequences to the decisions that they make here. And they are consequences that they will have to live with for the rest of their lives. God definitely forgives us for our lapses and our poor choices when we admit them. But he never just erases the very real consequences of them. Consequences not just in our lives, but in the lives of other people as well. There are consequences, and they are real. And we have to live with them and take responsibility for them. They can't just be wiped away like magic. So Hagar becomes pregnant. And almost immediately she realizes that this now challenges the previous power structure. 
The servant has succeeded where the mistress has failed. And the servant is now bearing an heir. And it seems from what the text is telling us that Sarai now starts to feel that she's losing the one thing that has given her some identity over all these years, which is her status as the sole wife and senior woman in the camp. Is that now going to be taken away as well, as Hagar is now reveling in some newfound power? Let's just take a few minutes to look at Hagar, because there are two women in this story, not just one. To our minds, that like neat and tidy family groups, Hagar's addition to this pairing of Abraham and Sarai feels inconvenient and messy. Somehow we don't like it. We're not used to, you know, threesomes, married couples. And so it feels, it feels uncomfortable. It feels inconvenient and messy. And, and we kind of feel, well, no wonder she's troublesome. She shouldn't have been there in the first place. But Hagar is one of those who will bear the consequences for someone else's choices. It's significant that we know Hagar's name. Abraham and Sarai don't refer to her at all by her name in this passage, when they are speaking, they only ever say, my servant, your servant. But the scripture writer gives us her name. And that has the effect of communicating to us that to God, she is an individual. Hagar is a person with a name, and she is the object of his care as well a real person with value and worth. Even though in that society she was a slave with no value as a person, she didn't really count as much as everyone else somehow. Hagar's story really challenges our mindset of neat and tidiness about God. Somewhere inside us, we just kind of feel that she's an intruder, she doesn't fit, she doesn't really belong here, she's not a real wife, she doesn't count. If only she wasn't there, it would all just be so much tidier. She's spoiling things. But she is there, not by her own choice. And God says... He is going to bless Hagar as well. So the two women are not getting along. They argue and they resent each other. Sarai complains to Abram, and Abram says, well, she's your servant, you sort it out, which is about the most cowardly thing he could possibly say, seeing as it's his child that she's carrying. And things get worse between Sarai and Hagar until, in the end, Hagar runs away. And then in verse 7, 
the nature of what's happening changes. In the first six verses, it's been all too human, falling out with each other. But in verse seven, God enters the narrative again, and he sends a messenger, an angel, to find Hagar in the wilderness. And that is truly remarkable. Hagar is not Abram or Sarai. She is not the chosen one. She's an inconvenient spare part in this story. But when her life becomes too awful for her to bear anymore, God sends a messenger to find her in the wilderness. Maybe you've had an experience where God came and found you in your wilderness. Maybe you need one now. He'll find you. He always knows where you are. He'll come and get you. The angel tells her that she must go back. And then he promises that the child she's carrying is a son and she is to call him Ishmael, which means God hears because God has heard her distress and her pain. And then, uniquely, Hagar gives God a name. Hagar says that to her, God is El Roy, the God who sees me. Oh yeah, we've done that one. Hagar is the first theologian in the Bible because she's the first person to describe God, to describe what she has found him to be like. She is the only person in the Old Testament who gives God a name. If we understand theology to mean thinking about God and developing an understanding of what God is like, then Hagar's theology, like all theology, is a response to what she has experienced and encountered of God. And alone in the wilderness and alone in the world, Hagar takes what she has experienced of God and puts it into words. He is the God who sees me. It doesn't feel like God sees me when I'm up to my neck in stress and struggle. It doesn't feel like God sees me when I'm worried out of my mind or I've just I've lost my way or life is just really hard. Hagar was the odd one out in this relationship. She didn't really fit and it would have been much easier without her. But in God's eyes, she is fully a person. She is seen. She is seen by him. Hagar may not be the one that God wants to use in his great plan, but she matters to him. 
He will not abandon her. God will provide a future for Hagar and her son as well. So as we think about these two, Sarai and Hagar, where is God in our waiting? Where is God when he is silent? Maybe the more important question is, who is God in our waiting? And who is God in the silence? Let's just take a few moments of quietness. What does Sarai's story or Hagar's story say to you? Where do you find the God who is for you in this story? Let's just be quiet for a few moments and then I'll pray. God of compassion, we believe that you are with us in our waiting, even when it doesn't feel like it. We believe that you see us, even when you are silent, that you haven't stopped watching over us. We believe that you are good and that you always seek our good and our growth in everything. There is no experience in our lives, no period in our lives when you are absent. You are always present and always holding us. In the times when the silence and the waiting becomes unbearable, when our heart cry is, how long, Lord? And where are you, Lord? And why don't you answer me, Lord? We remember Hagar and Sarah. And we remember that there are no easy answers. But all we can do is keep staking our trust on the God that we have found to be trustworthy and true. We remember, like Hagar, that you are El Roy, the God who sees me. You are the God who lifts the head of the broken and the crushed in spirit. You are the God who will never give up on us, no matter what. We love you, loving Father, 
and we say that we will trust you even though it's hard. We say that you are sovereign over us and over every situation in our lives. Our final song reflects that prayer. Let's stand and sing together that you are sovereign over us. There is strength within the sorrow Sanctifying us.